Starting our New Testament units, our New Testament study, and our Biblical Foundation study. So from now through December, we're going to go through the whole New Testament together. Today, what we're going to do is just kind of intro the New Testament itself. We probably won't get into Matthew today, um, but next week I think we'll do Matthew and Mark together. will be my plan. So um, we're just going to introduce the New Testament. So that'll be some historical stuff. It'll be some interpretive stuff just some general things to get to the New Testament. So at any point in this, if you've got questions, raise your hand, stop me. If I say something that's confusing or you want to know more about, ask. I may or may not have more to say, but you can ask. I'd I'd be glad for you to. But I think this stuff that stands behind the New Testament historically is super helpful in how we understand it, and I think we'll be um, really grateful to have it. Um, You'll hear more and more about this as we go through the Bible unit. But the goal of doing scripture the way we do it, when we do it here in 215, is not to cover every scholarly topic. It's not to give you the answer to every like theological debate or, or even like super um, deep you know, academic study. There will be little glimmers of that stuff where I think it's helpful to you, um, either because I just think it's interesting and inspiring or because it's questions you'll get. Um, regularly but for the most part what I want you to do is just become more confident in handling scripture and more familiar with what it says that's the goal so um, for some of you for some of these books it'll be like yeah I kind of know that one and there may not be anything revolutionary that day that's okay turn the pages again and look through it again and know what's in there it doesn't hurt anybody to just know what's in there more Um, for some of you a lot of this may be like never heard it before never thought about it before never um, never studied it like this before, and um, hopefully that's helpful to you. I hope it's it's interesting. But again, just know it's not it's not supposed to be highly academic. So if you feel that way, like if you're wanting that, that's probably not going to be it. Um, but hopefully, try to answer some of your questions that I found helpful that people tend to ask in church life. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so let's talk first about the intertestamental period. What does that mean? In between what? Yeah, the Old and New Testament. So pretty simple. But that's what that time period is referred to, the intertestamental period. <coughs> so major events and terms there. The first one is Nehemiah's wall is completed somewhere around 444 B.C. You don't need to memorize these dates, but I think seeing them laid out like this is just helpful for you to get to get a picture of what's happening. You may want to memorize them because I think it's, it's nice um, to know sometimes. But Nehemiah's wall is completed around 444 B.C. The next one, Malachi, was written around 430 B.C around 430. So what is a little more than 400 years after those things? Jesus. Yeah, the BC time period kind of ends and switches to the AD clock. You know how that works? So when you hear the term 400 years of silence, this is yeah, this is where it comes from. It's these 400 years. Um, another event, it's not on your sheet, but it would be really good for you to know, um, is when Ezra completed rebuilding the temple which was a little bit before when Nehemiah completed the wall. So that date is 516 or 517. I would say 516 B.C. Um, is when Ezra completed the temple. Who can tell me why that is significant? It's the end of the exile. It's the end of the exile. It would have been at least mentally the beginning of the end of the exile. So um, let's connect a, a, little, a few more dots historically. And I promise you this will be fruitful to you. Okay? It's not, this isn't just a random historical rabbit trail. Um, so what is 70 years before 516 B.C.? Just do the math. What's the date? 586. 586. And what happened in 586? Somebody knows. Something really important. You're right. Yeah. I can't remember what actually happened. What happened in 586? Somebody knows. 
The Babylonian exile happened. Yeah. Um, so Babylon conquers Jerusalem, and that city goes off into exile, officially speaking. And then in Jeremiah, he says it's going to be 70 years that you're in exile in Babylon. 70 years after that is when Ezra finishes the temple. So a lot of the Jewish people would have been like, he was right, God did it, we've got to get this done. We're back in the temple. God's reset up his reign, he's reset up his place, everything's going to be okay. But was everything okay when Ezra finished the temple? No, because even, what is it, you know, 70 years after that, Nehemiah's like, the city is a mess. Somebody's got to go back there and rebuild the wall. So Ezra's already finished the temple. Kind of theologically, they're thinking the exile period is over, but the things that we wanted after exile aren't happening. So the temple's done, but even when they rededicate the temple, they don't love it. A lot of people are mourning, like, this isn't that great. It was better before. So it's not that great. The city's a mess. A lot of the people aren't living there. People like Nehemiah are still living in Babylon. So there's still, like, unrest. And then they're still under the reign of the Persians. So exile means, like, we're taken away from our home and we're not in charge of our homeland anymore. Babylon conquered them. Persia conquers Babylon. This is more than you need, but hopefully it's interesting. Persia conquers Babylon. And then from then, it's just a string of empire after empire after empire that continues being in charge of the Jewish people. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So they're back home. They rebuilt their temple. They rebuilt their city. Exile's kind of over, but we're still paying so much tribute to these foreign pagan kingdoms. And a lot of our people still live there. And a lot of our religious practices kind of intermingled if we haven't been really faithful. But then some of us have been really faithful, and you guys who intermingled are so bad. And that's kind of festering. Does that make sense? That whole, during that whole 400-year time period. So your next bullet point here is the Jewish revolt. And there are actually several Jewish revolts, but this is a big one that, that is biblically important. Um, this one took place from 167 to 160 B.C. Um, sometimes this is called the Maccabean Revolt, if you've heard of the books of Maccabees. Uh, it's called the Maccabean Revolt. So that was a period in history when the Jewish people were under the reign of foreign governments, like Syrian, um, sometimes they were uh, Seleucid. There's a bunch of different kind of people groups that combine into like power in that part of the world during this time. And the Jewish people like rebel, revolt against it, try to take their city back because of that whole mindset. The mindset is still kind of the same. We've been conquered. We've been in exile. We rebuilt this and that was better. We rebuilt this and that was better, but we're still not in charge and things are getting worse and worse and worse. We've got to put a stop to this so we can have our homeland back. Because this is not just our home. This is God's promised land, right? For God's chosen people. So how do we know if God is on his throne if God's people don't have their land? We've got to get it back. Like it's a deeply entrenched desire for them theologically, politically, practically, all kinds of things converge in this. So here's some main um, things to know in this Jewish revolt period. The first one is Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So this is a um, Seleucid Syrian king who was just really awful, really, really awful. One of the things he did was he sacrificed a pig to Zeus on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, which is like a whole string of no-nos, right? Like he's not even supposed to be in there. A pig's not supposed to be close to there. And he sacrificed to a God that they don't believe is real. Like it was bad. Um, so he did stuff like that. And people are like, oh my gosh, we got to put a stop to this. Um, there's this phrase in Daniel um, where he says, someday you will see the abomination that causes desolation standing in the holy place. And a lot of people, when this happened, were like, that's it. That is the abomination that we've been waiting for. This is now kicking off this new period of history that we've got to deal with. 
we got to get them out. Does that make sense? Like major drive for them to deal with this. So that's Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, Judas Maccabeus was a Jewish guy who kind of helped lead a lot of this revolt, him and his family. The books of the Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha, which we'll talk about later, is are named after him and them. So he was a leader in this revolt um, that they end up kind of establishing Jewish peace again somewhat for a little while. Uh, another important term that comes out of this time period is Hanukkah. You guys know Hanukkah? And you know the menorah, right? What is the menorah? Yeah, it's the, the like candle thing with the eight um, candles. Here's why there's eight candles in it. It was because during this revolt, like they kind of take back the temple and they're going to go light the lamp in the temple, you know, light the candle in the temple. But they only have enough oil for the candle to be lit for one day. But once it's lit, they want to keep it lit because that's like the sign that it's back and God's here. They only have enough oil for one day and it's going to take them eight days to make more oil. And they're like, we'll just light it and let's see what we can do. And miraculously, the candle stayed lit for eight days. So eight days worth of candle is like this miraculous provision of God kind of validating their victory, right? And so it becomes the symbol then. These eight candles become the symbol of that time period. This revolt, political freedom again. Is this making sense so far? Are you following? Okay. All this will, uh, hopefully is interesting on its own, but all of this will kind of come together into biblical uh, understanding at some point here too. Um, the next thing that comes out of this is what's called the Hasmonean dynasty. The Hasmonean dynasty, and it's more complicated than this, but what would help you for your biblical understanding is to think of the Hasmonean dynasty as ultimately um, kind of reaching its peak in Herod the Great, who is the king at the time of Jesus, right? Again, it's more complex than that. But it's basically this kind of political ties and kings taking power and this dynasty of kings that begins here at the Jewish revolt and stretches on into that time period. So Herod marries somebody who is a Hasmonean. So the people that come to Jewish power at the time of the revolt, then this guy named Herod, who's a Roman sympathizer, marries a Hasmonean. So what he's trying to do is be sympathetic to Rome and get the Jewish people's approval and do them together. Kind of savvy political move, but makes him like tolerable, but also hated by everybody. And so he's trying to unite these two political sides of the coin because Rome is coming to power and now Herod kind of brings Rome a little bit more into Judea. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Again, there's way more complexity to it, but that will give you what you need biblically. Um, so that's the Hasmonean dynasty. So then the province of Rome in Judea is formed around 6 AD. So all of that kind of ultimately converges into Rome, the new empire, um, taking on Judea as one of its provinces officially. Um, somewhere around 6 AD. Rome is active a lot more before that, but that's like the official, now this is our place. Yes, Sam? Is, is there a, um, like a That does make sense. We'll get to that uh, on the next page. So we'll talk about that more later. Great question uh, about the promised land. What's a Hasmonean? <coughs> That's just the name of that like family and group of people who became the kings in that time period. So Herod was a Roman sympathizer, married a Hasmonean, is the family of someone who's Jewish. Yeah, like the line of kings that were established in that time period. Yeah, 
I don't know much more about it than that, honestly, right now. I could study it, but I don't know it right now. But yeah, that's that's the gist. Yeah. Any any other questions? You tracking? All right, um, so New Testament overview. Now let's put, like, move into New Testament time period. Those things are kind of the soil that the New Testament grows up in. So the first one, Jesus was born, and this is just like, this is all, these are all guesses. Jesus was born somewhere around 5 BC. Could have been a little earlier than that, could have been a little later than that. Probably not earlier. Could have been a little later than that. Um, chances are it probably wasn't right at zero, which would be so satisfying, but it just probably wasn't as we try to reconstruct the history. Um, but somewhere around the early BC or early AD line, obviously Jesus is born. Next, Jesus is crucified then somewhere around 30 to 33, and that date fluctuates, right, depending on when he was born. He was around 33 years old as you piece together the narratives. So depending on when you date his birth, that's when you date his death, there's a range, um, but it's somewhere in that time period. Again, this is just trying to get you a sense of like what's happening when in the timeline. Um, the next one, Jesus appears to Saul then somewhere around 34 AD. Again, that depends on when, he, when exactly he died, but we're just going to kind of extrapolate out um, from, from a range there. Um, so Saul, you know, is traveling to Damascus, the resurrected, glorified Jesus appears to him. So it has to be sometime after his death. Um, and that happens in Acts 9 and places us somewhere in the 30s AD. Uh, most of the epistles, the New Testament letters, were written in the 40s to 60s A.D., probably, um, which is really, really, really close to the time period of Jesus, right? Like, that's, it's only, you know, 7 to 20, whatever, years after, which if you're writing about a major, major historical event that close to it, that's, pretty, that's really close, you know, that's, that's really not far after, which is why one of the major arguments for people trying to attack scripture is to try to make it seem like the scriptural documents are really, really late, like much more new than that. Because the further they are removed, the easier it is to say, well, they're probably not accurate. Um, but the closer they are, the easier it is to assume they were accurate. I think either way, if we are believing the Spirit inspired it, it's easier to believe it's accurate. I also think there's other factors that give us reliability in the biblical text. One of them is, I really do think they were written pretty close to that time period pretty early. So the exceptions to this, to the epistles that were written in the 40s and 60s, are 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Those were probably written much later. So what do those four books have in common? They're all written by John. They're all written by John. So John did a lot of his writing later. There's probably a couple reasons for that. One of them is I think he was probably the youngest of the disciples, or at least one of the youngest, so maybe he's just got longer life. Um, he lived a lot, a lot longer. Um, a lot of the other ones were like scattered out more quickly or were martyred earlier on. John lasted longer. He was a pastor for a long time in Ephesus at the church there, which is really interesting to think about. We'll talk more about later. Um, but so John wrote those ones a little bit later on. Um, three of the Gospels were written in the 60s to 70s AD. Um, those dates are debated a little bit, but I, best I can guess, you know, I'm not super historian or anything, but from my study... I think those are the best guesses for those dates. And again, some people will, will really try to push them later and later and later because that makes them less and less and less reliable, supposedly. But I think that most of the evidence points towards those early dates. Which again, if you're thinking about compiling a very long, widespread biography of somebody who lived from zero-ish to 30-ish, to have it done 30 to 40 years after is startlingly close to the time. You know, tons of eyewitnesses are still alive. 
So if you're writing lies, there's a whole lot of people who would know. So them being that close um, to the actual events is historically pretty, um, pretty important, pretty significant to our understanding. Is that making sense? Mm-hmm. So what's the one gospel you think that wasn't written in the 60s and 70s? John, um, which was probably written somewhere in the 90s. So again, John is just writing a little bit later. Which also, um, and we'll talk more about John when we get to John, but um, that's also part of why John is so different, I think. It's not just because John's a different guy. I think he was. I mean, had a different kind of mind and a different way of expressing himself. You know, like maybe slips of paper in a cup or something. But John also wrote 30 years later. So I've, I just wonder if John is looking at the available biographies and saying, those are good, I believe them, they're great. Let me give you the other side of this coin that you need to see. He writes such different stuff than they do. Does that make sense? Questions? Okay. Does everybody have one of these? I have one on my thing here. Okay. Um, so the New Testament books, let's talk a little bit about this. We will scan through this relatively quickly, um, but I just want you to have some of it in front of you. Um, because there's long, long, long dry books written on this stuff that are worth reading if you need it or if you're curious. Totally worth it. Or poke around on Wikipedia a little bit. Sometimes that can be helpful, honestly. As long as you remember that Wikipedia is not a Christian website. So they'll have some things on there that are like, wait, I don't think that the Gospels were written in the 400s AD. Um, but for a lot of this stuff, it's helpful. So first, the Muratorian Fragment. Um, is a very, very, very old piece. Do you want me to write that? Fragment. 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 Muratorian is the word before it. Fragment is the word in your blank. So that is a fragment of, I think, parchment, um, something that was written on, where um, a lot of the New Testament books are written out. So most most of the list that we currently have of 27 is found on that piece of paper. And it's just a fragment, so it's like the whole thing isn't there. Um, but from before 200 AD, you're seeing the list of books that we now know as like, oh, that's the list they're starting to compile. That's really interesting. Because again, one of the major criticisms of scripture would be, you know, Christians decided hundreds of years later what the books were and they were eliminating some and keeping others and manipulating the information. And it's like before 200 AD, the list was already mostly established again that's really early on when you're talking about John not being written until the 90s and then it's not a whole lot longer after that that people are saying this is kind of a cohesive list Um, that's pretty close to be able to establish that historical um, record does that make sense that line of thinking so far Um, the next thing these are names that you may not know but again I think it's important for you to have in front of you and Wikipedia then this would be a great Wikipedia search Clement is your first blank Clement, which is like Clementine without the I? Clementine. Marcion. Justin Martyr. And Tatian. That's T A T I A N. Tatian. All refer to various parts of our New Testament books as authoritative. So Clement, Marcion, Justin Martyr and Tatian all refer to various parts of our New Testament books as authoritative, again, before 200 AD. So early on, before, you know, uh, Roman kind of inspired um, church councils, before um, the Roman emperors start 
influencing church governance well before that, Christians are already saying these New Testament books are authoritative for our life and practice and belief. These books and not others. And they're already doing that way early on. Does that make sense, that line of thinking? Again, those guys may not mean anything to you, those writers, but you could look them up. They'd be really interesting. Those are just early Christian writers saying, these are the books we look to and we're building our church on and we're building our practice on. Does that make sense? Questions on that? Okay. Um, your next blank, Tatian, one of those guys I mentioned, Tatian produced what's called the Diatessaron. I'll write that. Yeah. <laughs> It used to be funnier when we were in the other building and people walked in our area a lot more often. Sometimes we get done with class and be like, it's the strangest mixture of words written on the board. People walk in like, what you guys do today? <laughs> I don't know. So the Diatestron, <coughs> which is the first harmony of the Gospels. Are you familiar with that concept? It's where you would take all the Gospels and put them like in columns next to each other and see how they compare. So Tatian is the first one to kind of do that and say, let's get these together and see what it's like, like how they, how they match up. So from early on, Christians were already saying, these four are the ones that we want to look at and see how they compare, not the other ones that the History Channel will tell you about. Does that make sense? Um, next one, a guy named Irenaeus refers to 21 of our New Testament books. Again, that's before 200 AD. So he doesn't have the whole list of like Matthew through Revelation, this is it. Um, but at some point in his writings, he lists off 21 of the, of the 27 as like these are you know, books that he's looking to uh, and referring to. That's a significant number. A guy named Origen um, lists 26 New Testament books. So he lists them. Um, and then he refers to one more. So he'll refer to the other um, in another place. So again, in the 200s, this guy is saying this is the list of books. Like there's not others. There's not extra We've got our list uh, pretty early on. Uh, next, the Easter letter, the Easter letter of Athanasius, um, which is just an early writing of this guy named Athanasius, lists all 27 New Testament books and refers to them as canonized, um, and that's 367. Um, so that is, you know, a little later, but from all these times before people are talking about these books and then Athanasius in 367 doesn't just list them which people have been doing before but lists them and says they are canonized so that word canon is a Greek word uh, kanon in Greek which means like the standard the set like so by 367 they're not just listing these are books we look to but this is the established this is it we're not we're not messing with it adding to it taking away from it anymore uh, and then your next one, the church unanimously affirmed, the church unanimously affirmed the 27 New Testament books from the 5th century onward. So that's the 400s AD. So from that point onward, the church is saying, like, let's just put in writing. We all, we all agree. This is the list. Because people are starting by this point more and more to say, well, what about this? And what about this? And I wrote a story and I have this. What about this other extra thing? And they're like, no, we already set the list. That's older. That's not the same. It doesn't compare. Um, so by that point, the church is just saying that's it. And it's from what number? From the 5th century. Ancients. Yeah. So where is like all this happening? Like Or is it just kind of like, 
Yeah. I, some of them are contemporaries and kind of know each other. Some of them are just doing, they're like a Christian who's leading in their area. And then there's another Christian who's leading in their area. And um, we, their writings kind of survive and they're saying the same thing. Um, some of it, there is meetings of church leaders that are happening. Um, but that's later and later. Um, that happens more and more, especially after Constantine, which is in the 300s, when it's like, hey, let's get all the leaders together and make sure we're doing the same thing because now Rome's in charge, which changes a whole lot of the dynamics. Um, so, yeah, they're interacting some. Some of it's just like they're pastoring in their area, which, again, makes it even more where it's like this guy is saying the same list as this guy over here. Some of it's in Asia Minor. Some of it's in the Israel area. Some of it's North Africa. Some of it's, you know, Turkey, Greece, that, that kind of region of the world around the Mediterranean. See, is where a lot of this is happening. Yeah, good question. Does that help answer what you're asking? Yeah. yeah it, Should we know like the books that were referred, like in the 21? It is knowable, but I don't know them right now. Yeah, if you looked at those things, you could you could see them. And if I remember right, the one origin doesn't list might be Hebrews. If I remember right, does anybody know? Is that right? I think it's Hebrews. Which then is it was like, well, that one's the one that doesn't have an author. So, I don't know. But do you, were you guys saying something back there? I don't think it's Hebrews. You don't? His origin was pretty big on Paul's thinking Was he? I don't remember what it would have been. I don't remember. Probably Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. In any case, there's one of them, and it's, you know, it's not there. Huh? I don't know. I think you could look it up. Somebody could look it up right now and find it. Yeah, you could look it up. Um, yeah, good question. So yeah, this stuff is all you like. That's why I want to give this stuff to you, is less because like here's all the answers you need to know and have memorized always, but more like you could go look up the Muratorian fragment and learn all kinds of stuff about it and see exactly what it lists, and that would be interesting if you want to. And occasionally, some of this I give you because it's helpful to resource you. Some of it. Sometimes people will bring this stuff up in your ministry because they, I mean, I joke about it, but because they watched a History Channel special or because, you know, they went to a religion class at whatever college and they're being asked all kinds of questions. And so it's helpful for you to be able to know, like, have some base of understanding. So it's not just like, ah, I don't know, it's crazy. I'll call Ben. Like, no, it's crazy. Look at your sheet. You can answer it. Like, you know more of this stuff than you think. You're welcome to call me also, but you know more of this stuff than you think, and you can do it. Um, does that make sense to help? Are you finding it back there, Nate? I'm finding like six different answers. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's just keep rolling then. Um, next, New Testament period. So this is where we'll get to some of what you were asking about earlier, Samantha. Um, so Messianic expectations in this period come from um, kind of a, a mixture of a, a handful of places. Um, one of them, obviously, is the prophets. And the prophets are written, these aren't your blanks yet, I'm just talking. We'll get to the blanks in a second. I saw you guys all go down. Not yet. Um, the prophets are written during times and around times of what? It's a word we talked about a lot or today already. It starts exile. with the exile. So the prophets are written around that time. So the prophets are written largely either preparing for or responding to the fact that the Jewish people have been conquered by a foreign army and everything is a mess. That's a lot of what they're doing. Does that make sense? That's what the prophets are engaging with. Either warning Israel, if you repent, this can be fixed, or speaking into Israel and saying, 
here's hope for us and what's going to be redeemed. So around that is where a lot of messianic expectation develops, which is a lot around we're going to get home, we're going to get back home someday, we're going to be back in power someday, these evil oppressors aren't going to be in charge forever, God's going to fix this and bring justice. That's a lot of the prophetic hope. Does that make sense? Before that even, a lot of the messianic idea, the idea of a messiah being like, the one that God is going to anoint to fix all of our problems, basically, comes um, even before the prophets and starts coming, um, I, th- I think, earlier on, like when um, Israel decides they want their own king. That's when a lot of this mindset starts to form. Because up, up until that point, this is like in First Samuel, you can read about it. They've had judges, they've had prophets, they've had priests kind of combining to be God's voice to the people. That's what they've had. And then they look around at the other nations and say, we want a king like that. I don't know all the reasons they do. Some of it could be because they want um, a more clear like centralization of military power or a more public, powerful presence for other nations to see. Some of it could be um, it just seems a lot more um, like even politically or organizationally clear. I'm guessing a little bit here. No, there's no verse that says this. I just wonder if the people are saying... We do a whole lot of this, like, Samuel shows up every so often and tells us something, but, like, it'd be great if we just had, like, somebody in charge all the time. I wonder if that's some of what they're looking for, um, instead of more of what it's like to be led by God, which you guys know in your personal lives, being led by God is the best, and also sometimes confusing. Like, I wonder if they're just longing for, like, a human representation. It's the same idea as when they made the golden calf, when they came out of Egypt. It's interesting if you if you reread that. The second years we did God as a name, right? It, mm-hmm. You can see it a lot in there. It's interesting if you reread that. I don't think they're saying, forget God, forget Yahweh. We want something different. We want a better God. I think they're saying, we want to be able to picture this God that brought us out of Egypt. Let's make a beautiful gold idol to represent him. And God's like, no, you can't represent me in an image like that. That was their sin. So even back as far as that, I think they're longing for something that's normal, something that makes sense, something they can see, something they can hold, something they can like, that probably wouldn't have said control because it's a king, but emotionally, spiritually control a little bit more, get their hands around, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So they're, uh, before even the prophets, I think there's this idea of someday the right king is gonna lead us into power. So Saul does that a little, but then tapers off. David really does that because his kingdom expands a lot, lots of military victory, and he's this good godly poet guy. It's like such a perfect thing. But then he's also kind of a mess, and then his son is really a mess. Mm-hmm. Even though Solomon's kingdom is the most wealthy it's ever been, so that's great. But he's awful. And then his son split the kingdom, and now it's really a mess. So what we need is not just a king that's going to represent everything great about God, but we need a king who can reunify us to bring our like centralization of power back, to bring our national dignity back. Are you following this line of thinking so far? So that's kind of what they're wanting. Then exiles happen in both the north and the south, both sets of the divided kingdom. And the prophets really launched this, like, justice for our enemies, return back home. Finally, the temple's going to be what it was supposed to be in the first place. We need to restore our holiness and claim that back. All of those things, then, um, combined with just the original, this is the land I brought you out of Egypt to give you, this is your heart place. All of that stuff combines into the expectations that they bring into a Messiah figure at this point, at the intertestamental kind of point of history. Does that make sense so far? What questions do you have about that? Yeah. 
I want to make sure that makes sense. And I'll put some bullet points to it. But I know this is a lot of like going around and we're not in scripture yet, but I think it will be helpful to you. Okay. So here's what I would say becomes kind of if we could summarize the, the expectation for what a Messiah is going to do. If we could summarize it, here's what we would say. The first one, the enemy defeated. The enemy defeated. So, um, you know, we said Ezra rebuilds that temple, Nehemiah rebuilds that wall. They're kind of back home. But the problem all along was, but our enemy still is in charge of us. Like the Persians still are our rulers. And after that, it's Alexander the Great and the Greeks. After that, it's Seleucids and Syrians and Romans. And so by the time of Jesus, they've lived for 400 plus years of saying, we're kind of home, but we still have an enemy ruling over us. So this isn't over. We still are waiting for Messiah to actually fix it because we got home, but we're not in power. We need to defeat this enemy because isn't, after all, isn't that what the prophets promised? God will finally, finally bring justice for your oppressors and finally throw off the yoke of your slavery. Like, that's prophetic language. That's what they're longing for. So we will know Messiah has come when, number one, our enemy has been defeated, right? Number two, the promised land possessed. The promised land is possessed. Because God promised us back in Exodus, this is your place. Back before that, like that's where Abraham lived, you know? That was Abraham's place. And then they go off to Egypt, and then God brings them back there. So this is our place. So we need to be in our land. So they're in their land. They got back from Babylon. They got back from Assyria, mostly. But who else is there? Everywhere they look, there's Roman guards. When they look on their temple mount, there's a palace that Pilate lives in. I mean, they're home, but it's not their home. Like, this is not their land. And so there's so much, like, pressure, attention focused on we need our land back because God promised this is our place to live. This is our place to be. This is our place to reign. We want the land back. And so until we can defeat the enemy and get them out and actually own our land, we, we will know Messiah hasn't come yet because we're waiting for God to ultimately fulfill all those promises. Number three, the temple will be, will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt. So this one is a little bit tricky because the temple had been rebuilt by Ezra, Right? And then the temple was kind of refurbished by Herod as another attempt to win people's favor, I think. Herod was kind of a great builder. He built a lot of big things. The temple was one of them. It was magnificent um, in that day. And so they could look and say, the temple is built. Herod could say, look, I built you your temple. I wonder if Herod is thinking, like, I, I kind of am anointed by God to lead this nation, right? Look at the temple that I've built. And it's beautiful. Like, you, the... Chances are if you see a, like a picture or an artist representation or in Israel now, sometimes they'll have like models of what the temple would have been like. That's probably Herod's temple that they're, that they're basing it on. It was amazing, beautiful. So they're longing for the temple to be rebuilt, which it kind of was. But when Ezra rebuilt it, remember I talked about it wasn't the same. They kind of mourned over it because it wasn't good enough. When Herod rebuilt it, it was beautiful, but one... A lot of people would have been like, but we don't trust Herod and we know what he's doing. That doesn't count. And two, is it actually functioning with the purity and the intent that it always had? Or does it even count that those Gentiles are up there too? And those Romans are up there too? Like it, it was so tainted that it was like not just build it, but reclaim it, reorder it, reinstitutionalize it. Does that make sense? And that was like kind of there, kind of not. Exile wasn't over yet for them because that was still so much in flux. 
Um, the next one is the nation blessed. The nation blessed. That's when we'll know the Messiah really has come. The Messianic age, the new age of history, really has begun in the Jewish mindset at this point in history when our nation is blessed. When not just our enemy is gone and we have our temple and we have our land, but we are almost like have overthrown and taken the place of power. Um, because God said, you will be my chosen people, my royal priesthood, my holy nation, a people belonging to me. You will be the place that all nations are blessed by. So how is that going to happen? I will bless you, Abraham, and make your family a blessing, right? So that's what they're longing for, um, those four things. The enemy's defeated. We possess the promised land. The temple is rebuilt and functioning like it ought to. And then our nation will ultimately be blessed and be powerful and be the place where this stuff is working and happening. Does that make sense? So those are the four big things. There's more complexity to it. Those are the four big things. But now think about this through the lens of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. This is what people are longing for and waiting for and counting on happening. And then Jesus comes and starts kind of claiming to be Messiah. But are any of those things happening as far as they're concerned? As far as somebody like Judas is concerned? Is any of this happening? No. no. Right? Like you're not going to defeat the enemy. Mm-hmm. You're saying turn the other cheek if a Roman tries to mistreat you well that's not what we wanted um you're not focused on like reestablishing this land as a matter of fact we ask you about like isn't this temple so great isn't this land so great and jesus is like yeah temple's gonna be torn down and like wait but we're supposed to be like rebuilding and refocusing on this and jesus is like it's going to be torn apart soon what so no wonder they're frustrated right and our nation will be blessed and jesus is like you nation this nation is full of hypocrites you know, like we're going to open the door to Gentiles soon. So it's so confusing when so much of the mindset has been built, even biblically, like trying to interpret the prophets faithfully on this stuff. But it, it comes, I think, from a little bit of a false, I don't, I don't think, it comes from a false understanding of, I think, God's perspective on some of this stuff. I don't think God ever gave them the promised land to say, now defend your turf and don't let anybody on it. And this is the place where you reign over everybody. From the get-go, it was, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing, and then all nations on earth will come to you. It's not like defend your territory. It's welcome the nations, right? That's not how, quite how it was used. But I think partially out of fear, partially out of response, response to exile, all those things kind of get so overemphasized, so nationalized, that it's hard to see when Messiah is standing right in front of them doing all that stuff. So no wonder they're confused. Think about Pharisees. For a minute. No wonder Pharisees are so adamant about being Pharisees and doing it right. And let's let's not even just follow the law, but let's take a few steps back and follow the things that would help us follow the law. Because the last time we did it, we all got conquered and driven out of here and we're still recovering. Like if I'm a Pharisee, I'm looking around and saying, you want to compromise on the smallest thing? Then those Romans are going to sweep through here and destroy everything and light the whole city on fire. Stop compromising. Like if I'm a Pharisee, I can point to 500 years of historical evidence saying it is our people's compromise that led to this mess we're in. And if it wasn't for that, then the enemy would be defeated. It would have been defeated, you know, a thousand years ago. And we'd be in our promised land and the temple would be fine. Like if I'm a really hardcore conservative trying to be holy Pharisee, then I'm going to be really, really, really frustrated if people around me aren't trying to be holy because how else are we going to get there? And how else is the Messiah going to come unless he can look around and say, you guys are finally doing it right. Now let's get there. Yes, Samantha. So this question is more picking your brain. Do we have time for that? Uh, yeah. Okay. So we know that like God 
like Jesus came, he fulfilled the prophets, and he yeah. did everything like that. It just was completely different than what everybody expected because it didn't seem like it lined up with the Old Testament. And my question is, it's just like God always knew he was going to do that, and he always does things that are out of our expectations, but why do you think he gave the word to the prophets to present the Messiah like that, and yet it was completely different? Yeah, that's a like, good question. Do you know, like, why? Like, and that's, we don't know, I mean, unless there's something that I miss because I do that all the time. But, like, it's just, like, why do you think that he was presented as this great warrior that, I mean, like, because that is true. It's just why do you think he, God gave that? Yeah. I think, um, and there's probably more to it than this, but the answer that, that comes to my mind is I yeah. think the whole time Israel misidentified their enemy mm-hmm. and because even when those exiles were happening it wasn't like God saying hey for a little while I'm just going to let this more powerful army defeat you but someday I'll give you the power to defeat them mm-hmm. it was you have forsaken me so I can't fight for you or I won't fight for you like I would have otherwise because you have forsaken me so this nation is going to conquer you and then when you turn to me and when you're with me and when I act on behalf of you again, then I'll deal with them. But that's not your problem to deal with. It's my problem to deal with. Mm-hmm. The, their enemy was Satan, evil, yeah. compromise. That was the enemy. But I think they misidentified it. Probably, I mean, for lots of reasons. We would do the same thing. You know, if I'm in that, I'm in that setting, it's like, no, Nebuchadnezzar's the enemy. It's like, well, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't great. Your problem was your holiness. Your problem was your selfishness, you know? So I think they just misidentified it. And the prophetic language, I think, is accurate, applicable, true. It's just misidentified. So, which I think is a great question. I think all throughout you can find that. So here's what I would say to all these things. Think about, think about this for a second. Jesus says at the end of his life, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? Teach them to obey everything I commanded you, and I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So think about this. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And they're thinking, no. Rome's authority has been given to Pilate. That's why he could kill you. And Jesus is like, right, but I walked out of the grave. So who has the authority? Who's the enemy? Is Pilate the enemy? Or is your sin the enemy? I have authority over that. So what are you worried about? The enemy's been defeated because I'm standing here, right? So I think that's a, he's, he's undoing, he's meeting their expectation, but just subverting it, even in that statement. So he says, all authority's been given to me. I walked out of my grave. Sin is defeated, has no power. It's over. Um, all authority's been given to me. Therefore, go into all nations. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say, therefore claim your nation and hold your ground. He doesn't say, now we're going to restore this place that you've wanted. Now my holy people finally get their place back. That wasn't the goal. I don't think that was God's intention. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. The enemy's defeated. So in every place in the world, I have jurisdiction. Go into all the world. You don't need this land. Your vision is too small. The whole world is our promised land. Go take it. Because I have all authority over all of it. Go into all the world. Um, 
And then the temple being rebuilt. Like we want the temple to function, the temple to, to be working like it's supposed to be because that's the place where you know God is. And when the temple's working, you know God's there. When the temple's functioning, you know God can come to dwell with his people. And Jesus says, I'm with you always. And I'm going to send my spirit to you to live in you. So you don't need that place. Let it be torn down, stone from stone. doesn't matter. Rome can light it on fire and sacrifice the, all the pigs they want. Tear it down. I am with you always. My spirit is in you always. You're the temple. We don't need this place. Go. And then you want the nation to be blessed. You know, he's like, you are baptized. I'm with you. I have all power. We have this whole world. What else could you need? I'm going to bless you to go be a blessing. We have everything we need. We have the authority. We have the power. Go teach people what it's like. So even in that one statement, I think Jesus meets all of those expectations just in such a crazy way and interprets correctly who the enemy is, what the land is, what the goal is, what the, what the intent, I think, has been all along. Like, I, I don't think when God promised Abram, you know, you'll be a great nation that he was thinking so that you can be proud of your nation. He said, I'll make you a great nation so that all nations will be blessed through you and can know who I am. When he told the Israelites in the Exodus, I'll make you a great nation in a kingdom of priests. He doesn't say, I'm going to make you a great nation so that you can beat people like the Egyptians and get your own slave army. He tells them, I, you are my great nation to be priests. What's the priest's job? To stand between God and people and help the people understand what God wants and help God understand what the people need. That's your job. That's why you're great. Um, so I think Jesus meets all those things just in a crazy, beautiful way. And I just wonder for the disciples... If they're parsing that out and like, wait a minute, that's everything we've ever wanted, you know? Um, everything we've ever wanted. Just never um, never thought it would be that way. This is something else really interesting I'll talk about here. Um, I, I was reading a book, in, uh, an N.T. Wright book, that I'm not going to have you guys read, so I'll tell you about it. Um, but it's called The Day the Revolution Began. One of the points he makes is that the crucifixion happens in the context of a Jewish festival. But it's not Yom Kippur. You know what Yom Kippur is? Which one is that? It's the Day of Atonement. So that's the day where like, we're gonna kill the animals, spill the blood, all the sin is paid for. That happens on the cross, right? Jesus' blood is spilled, it pays for our sin. The New Testament makes clear that's part of what happens. Big, a big part of what happens at the cross. But what's the festival happening at the time when Jesus is actually arrested and crucified? It's Passover. What was Passover about? Yeah. Yeah. And leaving Egypt, right? The enemy whose land you've been living in is still there, but God leads you out from it, defeats it in ways that you couldn't have ever predicted, and says, you are now my people to go into all the world and change everything. That's, and so Jesus fulfills that. That's primarily what's on people's minds when Jesus is doing his thing mm -hmm. and saying he has now created a nation, a kingdom of priests whose enemy has been defeated. What stands before us now? <laughs> like put us in front of a sea, he'll split it. You know, it doesn't matter. That's, I think, primarily what's on people's mind when Jesus does what he does at the end of his life. Isn't that interesting? I think that's so interesting. We still latch onto the atonement piece and never stop latching onto the atonement piece. Mm -hmm. But I think it's so interesting that there is a Jewish festival going on, and it's not the atonement one. It's the new way of life passing out of slavery to evil into the new land that God's prepared for his people. It's amazing.
Okay. Next. Um, New Testament teaching. So this section is just about um, some general like wisdom or counsel or tips uh, when you teach the New Testament, because you will, regardless of your role. You're going to stand before volunteers, or you're going to stand before a whole audience, or you're going to lead a church, or you're going to, you know, a youth group or whatever. You're going to handle New Testament scripture for people. So here's some things I think are really helpful for you to hold on to so that we can do it really well. Um, first, let the NT, so New Testament, let the NT ultimately interpret the OT. But use the OT to help you understand the NT. Um, so I'll talk through that some more. But let the NT ultimately interpret the OT, but use the OT to help you understand the NT. So um, any text I'm reading in the Old Testament, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to primarily lean on. If it's like, this is confusing, well, I'm going to go to the New Testament to ultimately interpret our fulfillment of it. You know, it's like Jesus is going to ultimately interpret for me what I see in the prophets. I'm going to read a prophetic passage that might be weird sometimes. It's like, well, here's what Jesus did. That's ultimately going to be where I get to, to interpret what the prophets are talking about because I think Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. Does that make sense? But that doesn't mean I just want to say, we're a New Testament church. I'm a New Testament preacher. I'm a New Testament believer. The Bible says in the New Testament, I believe it. And just let the other stuff go. Like I can't understand my New Testament without my Old Testament very well. Which means I don't just want to say, confusing passage, but Jesus died for my sin. That's great. But I want to say, confusing Old Testament passage, what did they mean? What did they mean by that? What did the author try to mean by that? What would ancient Near Eastern minds would have thought when they read that passage? I want to understand that on its own terms. So that I can do things like, wait, they had a misunderstanding of something that Jesus changed. So I'm going to say, I'm going to go with Jesus if they're confused, but that's going to help me connect some dots that make sense. So the New Testament is going to ultimately interpret the Old Testament, but I've got to understand the Old Testament well and on its own terms, or I can't have New Testament very long. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, next, this is kind of flows off of that. Jesus is the ultimate theological trump card. <laughs> Jesus is the ultimate theological trump card. Um, so I think there's a healthy way to do this, and then there's not as good ways to do this. Sometimes, um, like I kind of judged about a minute ago, you can just do this like, well, the Old Testament is confusing and weird, but Jesus died for me. True. Great. But, you know, let's like, engage the Old Testament in some terms. Or you can just be like, I think it can cause us to interpret texts, Old Testament or New Testament, really in a really shallow way, just to, until we can find enough of a connection to bring it to the cross, and Jesus died to save, our, to save us from our sin. And again, that's true. Never stop preaching that. But I want to be able to interpret Scripture well on its own terms. But then let Jesus be the lens that I look through all of it through. Like, Jesus is it. Jesus is God's Word before Scripture is God's Word, in, the, in just the definition of the terms. Um, it's, you know, John says, in the beginning was the Word. And that doesn't mean in the beginning was the Bible. That means in the beginning there was somebody with God, was the Son. So Jesus is how we understand all this. Jesus is what God was like when he was here. So I'm going to take Jesus and let him help me make sense of all of it. Does that make sense? I remember being in college and taking hermeneutics class, and one of the sayings that we were taught all the time, which I believe and is true and I have used since and will continue to, I don't think it's bad, but we were taught all the time, context is king context is king because I don't just want to look at a verse and pull it out of context I want to let context help me understand it context is king which again I think is a great phrase still use it believe it but I had a couple of friends who would always anytime they heard context is king they know they would say no Jesus is king context is just really really important 
And I think that's true and kind of a facetious Bible college. That's so funny because I was in Bible college thing. But I think it's helpful. Like Jesus is king. Um, and let him be the lens that we see all of it through. He's the lens I see Old Testament through. He's the lens I see Paul through. He's the lens I see Revelation through. Jesus is it. Um, next, use these four lenses to read the New Testament. I think it's helpful for us to try to look at it from all of these angles, or you're not going to get the full picture, because it's a very multifaceted, multicultural kind of document or collection of documents. So first is the Jewish lens. Remember that these are Jewish people in a Jewish culture, mostly Jewish authors, probably, yeah. Maybe exclusively Jewish authors. Depends on what you think. So these are Jewish people, Jewish stories, Jewish context that leads into it. Um, And so we need to think Jewishly about this stuff. What would Jewish people have thought? How would Jewish people have approached the temple? How would Jewish people have understood a parable? Why was that significant? Um, Second is the Greco-Roman lens. The Greco-Roman lens. Because while this is about Jewish people and the fulfillment of a Jewish story, and Jesus was a Jewish human, they lived in a Greco-Roman influenced and dominated world. So culturally, there was a lot of Greco-Roman influence. Linguistically, there's a lot of Greco-Roman influence. As the gospel spreads outside of Jerusalem, it's into Greco-Roman territory and Greco-Roman architecture and Greco-Roman politics. So we need to be able to understand that. What was it like to be a Roman citizen? Why does that matter? What was it like to be a Roman citizen who didn't live in Rome but lived somewhere else and you had Greek heritage? What was that like? You don't need to be, you know, like a scholar about it but that's really helpful like you're going to understand acts way better if you dig into that a little bit and take the time to say i'm going to read the new testament through the lens of the culture Um, third this is i think really hard for us um, but really important is the oppressed lens the oppressed lens so many of the of the people the people groups that are the main um, places of emphasis the main characters in new testament text and old testament for that matter are oppressed people. And so they're going to read and write stories differently than people who aren't. Um, People who, I mean, a word we would use for it now is when you bring privilege to these texts, you're going to read it differently than if you read it like the people who it was originally written for. We'll talk about this a ton, especially in Revelation. If we read Revelation like privileged, unoppressed people, you're going to read it in all kinds of weird ways. If you read it like an oppressed person who needed some encouragement and some hope to hold on to and something to subvert the power that was dominating you, you're going to see way different things in it. And I think that's, it's unhealthy if we can't get there. This is one that's, you know, the Jewish thing and the Greco-Roman thing, we can study our way into understanding it a little bit more. The oppressed piece, you also can, but I think it takes a little more work because it's so... It's just so typically out of uh, tune for us. Um, even those, those segments of our population that experience oppression, I don't know that it's the same as people being Jewish under the thumb of Romans in the first century. I, there's just a different, it's a different world um, than we live in. It's a different time and place than we lived in. There's just something you have to really work to transport yourself into that mindset, and we won't understand scripture fully and well if we can't get there to some level. Does that make sense? Uh, number four is the eschatological lens. The eschatological lens. You want me to write it? <laughs> Try to sound it out. Try it. You guys give it a shot and tell me what you think. I won't make fun of you if you're wrong. Eschatological. Close. E-S-C-H. A. E-S-C-H. 
I use this word on purpose, by the way, um, because I want to. I know it's weird. I don't just want to be like eschatological is a fancy theological word. I want you to understand it's really important, and it'll help you with this. So eschatological. Um, you'll sometimes hear eschatology. If you've heard of that, that may be more familiar to you. That's um, usually called the study of the end times. So um, this is a Greek word that means last. And then this is Greek that means like study, right? So like biological is the study of life. Because bios is life. Does that make sense? So the study of last things or what will happen at the end. So here's why this is so important. We hear that word probably, I'm guessing even, you hear that word and you think, oh, eschatology, you mean like the end of time, like the rapture and like Jesus coming back, right? That's typically where we jump to. That, that whole conversation is a piece of this but it's a relatively small piece of this mindset. So I think we need to be able to understand what is eschatology and what is an eschatological mindset because it's all throughout the New Testament and you'll miss it if you can't get there. So for the Jewish reader, the Greco-Roman reader, they would have been thinking about eschatology not in terms of someday I have this like scheme of how it's all going to end and I'm aiming toward that, but they would have thought there will be a point in history that is like the grand culmination of it, like the final age that needs to take place that will be so great. The messianic age was a very eschatological expectation. Not because they thought time ended that day. I think that's what we tend to think when we think eschatology, the end of time, right? They would have thought the end of the development of history. Like when the Messiah comes, he ushers in the completion of everything God has set into motion, which doesn't mean time ends. It means the good time begins, kind of. Does that make sense? So it's a little different, but I think it's important. So, so much of a Jewish mindset, an oppressed Greco-Roman citizen mindset would have been eschatological in the sense of history is moving towards this culmination. History is moving towards this, like, um, set of circumstances where finally we're into the age that we've been looking forward to and longing for and need to happen. Um, and so, so much of the New Testament is written with this kind of thinking in mind. Um, um, G- when Jesus says, surely I'll be with you until the end of the age, we hear until time ends. I think Jesus thought until this age of history is done and the next one begins, which is a very eschatological statement, but not in the term of the end of time in terms of history developing into what God intends. Does that make sense? It's kind of a subtle difference. I think it's really helpful because so much of um, scripture is eschatological, which doesn't necessarily mean it's talking about how the end is going to happen. It means it's talking about what we're looking forward to God doing and how we can be part of it. It's a very different um, mindset, a very different understanding. Questions about that? Does that make sense? I don't want that to be confusing because the goal is to help you be unconfused. We'll see it play out as we go through New Testament passages too in the next few months. Okay? Okay. Here's the next one. So those are like interpretive things, things to keep in mind as you're interpreting New Testament. These are communication things that I think are helpful. Um, So if any Old Testament passages are in your New Testament text, if you're teaching something, preaching something, leading through something, you've got a New Testament passage you're trying to dissect, and you've got an Old Testament quote in that New Testament passage or an Old Testament reference, here's a suggestion that I found helpful. (coughs) Use them as exegetical help, so like to help you understand what the passage is about, because if that New Testament author is going to refer to an Old Testament passage, they probably did that on purpose, and it's probably really important to them. 
because that was their scripture. Um, so use it to help you understand it exegetically. And then secondly, um, use it as illustrative material. So think illustrate, I-V-E, okay? Illustrative. Um, that'll help you illustrate things. I didn't know that was a word. Oh, it's a word. So here's what I mean by that. Um, when you see Old Testament passages, don't just ignore them, don't just breeze past them. They're super helpful in your understanding. And then also, this is um, hopefully a practical tip for you. I do this a lot. Um, part of it is probably be because of a weakness I have as a preacher, that I'm not always great about like, here's an awesome story I have that fits perfectly into this theme from my life. I'm usually don't, not great at that. But what I can do is say, this is a story that the biblical author wrote into this passage. How handy is that? So I'm going to go back to that story and tell that story to illustrate the point, because that's what Paul did. So if it worked for him, surely it works well for me. And you can usually tell those things in funny ways or at least in interesting ways and use it like you would a really interesting <coughs> personal story. But I don't have to try to figure out a personal story that fits and I don't have to jam a personal story that doesn't fit into a sermon where I need somebody to laugh. Does that make sense? But I can use the Bible to do to accomplish that purpose that I need in a talk. But just let Scripture do that itself. I think it's really, really helpful. Um, yeah, I think it's helpful. I do that a lot. On the next one, the New Testament is not primarily about personal salvation or fulfillment. The New Testament is not primarily about personal salvation or fulfillment. By that I mean like personal fulfillment. I mean, I think a lot of times it's such a temptation for us to be practical and to have good application that we just jump to like, this passage is about how you find joy. No, it's not. This passage is about, you know, Jesus facing the cross and overcoming his fear because he believed in God's plan to save the world. That's what it's about. So make an application about how we can take joy. And that's a subtle thing, but in a, if I'm giving you some communication tips, I would just say make sure we don't say, this passage is all about how you find peace in your relationships. It's probably not about that. You know, It's probably about something way bigger and way different than that. Be honest about that. Own it. Teach it. And then say, what can we learn if that's the mindset we have? Well, we can learn that my relationships are going to be different. Here's how. We can learn that my leadership is going to be different. Here's how. But I think let the New Testament be about what it's about. And don't say this is all about what we get. This is all about how I get salvation. It's not about that. The New Testament is not about you getting salvation. It's not. It teaches us about it. It shows us how to get there. It invites us into it. But the New Testament is about God defeating the power of Satan over all of us, defeating the power of evil in the world, and providing a new way of life for everyone who believes in him. That's primarily what it's about. Does that make sense? So I think being able to communicate that stuff um, just with accuracy is really important. <coughs> okay, last. Um, help people connect the characters and narrative dots. Help people connect the characters and the narrative dots. And so what I mean by that is little things like, um, just like the names in the, in the stories. You know, sometimes you'll read a name, and it's not even like an important biblical character, but it's just the name of somebody. You can do a little bit of research and figure out something about that person. You know, usually. Sometimes you can't, but usually you can. Help people understand who you're talking about in the story. Or, you know, there's different Bible characters that have the same name. You're just like, which Mary are we talking about? There's more than one. You do the work to figure out which one it is and help people understand. Because I think one of the travesties, you guys have heard me talk about this. I think it's a travesty. 
if people walk out of church and go, wow, I don't know how they know so much about the Bible. That was amazing. And then kind of subtly think, I guess I better come back next week or find a great podcast or pull something else up on YouTube so that somebody can teach me and make me feel inspired. Like, no, why don't we help people understand it? So they go home and say, oh, I can't wait to read that Bible story because it makes sense. That's a totally different outcome. And uh, I think it's very achievable to do that. Um, so do, you do the work. You're the minister. You're the Bible teacher. You're the person prepared and equipped and called to do this, which means do preparation work to dig in and say, which Mary are we talking about? And who are the different ones? And here's why it matters. Um, who is Martha? How are they related? How are they related to Lazarus? What, you know, all that stuff. Figure it out and teach it. Convey it. Connect those characters. Another way we can do this really well is um, um, when you're in, like, teaching from the epistles, go to Acts and say, like, Paul's writing this epistle to the Ephesians. This is not the first time he's talked to the Ephesians. Here's where you read about it in Acts. Did you know that most of these places Paul writes to, he actually visited first? And, like, a lot of people don't know that. Some of you didn't know that, you know, until right now maybe, and that's okay. Now you do. Um, and how empowering is it to know, man, I can connect those dots. These things are related. They're not just random stuff. Um, connect those dots for people. Help them to understand the different people and how they interact. Um, help them to understand, you know, when Paul's listing off names at the end of his epistles, the people that he's grateful for. Some of those people are people that we know from Acts or from other letters, or that you can just do some historical study on. And just a little bit of a poking around and finding out who those people are can be revolutionary to our, to our church and to people who hear. And again, it gives them so much confidence. I really believe that. I've heard it. I know it does. It gives people so much confidence to go home and open the book when they might have been intimidated or just felt like that was only for the professional people. It's like, no, it's for you. So let's do the work to make them not scared of it and help them feel empowered to open it. And it's transformational for them. So help people connect those dots. And it can be huge, I think, for their walk, for their, for their confidence. Okay, questions, thoughts? Okay. All right, so we'll jump into Matthew next week. It's going to be great. Let me pray. God, we are grateful for today. We're grateful for your word um, that is living and active for your son, um, who is your word in flesh and um, who brings scripture to life and helps us know what it means. God, I pray that over these next few months as we go through the New Testament, that you would open our eyes to it in a new way, that people who are pretty familiar with the New Testament already would become more familiar with it and will be humble enough to submit to learning. Uh, I pray that people that this is um, feels like over their head or, or really new for would not feel insecure or intimidated or like they don't belong, but would feel excited to jump in. I pray that all of us um, would learn alongside one another and love your word more and get good at teaching it not so that we can be impressive, but so that your word can become even more accessible to the people we lead and teach. I just pray that that would be the fruit of our ministries. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.